to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. Welcome. If you're new to Grace, maybe this is your first time here at Grace. Maybe this is your first time ever in church. I mean, like ever. This is our invitation to you as a church family. This welcome is from Jesus. He extends it to you right now. And the invitation for all of us on Easter is this. Come to the empty tomb empty-handed. Jesus is calling each and every one of us right now to abandon all of the things and to abandon all of the gadgets and to abandon all of the idols and all of the so-called righteousness, all of our own goodness that we think we have, and to abandon all of the stuff that we trust in and to just come to Him with the empty hands of faith and simply believe that He paid it all. That he really is enough. Jesus is calling all of us to simply believe this Easter morning that his life, his death, and his resurrection is enough. And that's what we'll see happen at the empty tomb that first Easter morning. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 taking a break from our series in 1 Kings. I was originally planning on being in 1 Kings on Easter Sunday. Uh, I can get to the cross and empty tomb from any passage. So I was just going to stay in 1 Kings. But my back went out, and thankfully Greg filled in. And thank you all who prayed and sent emails and text messages and cards praying for me. I'm almost there. Thank you very much. But we're in John 20 today. And the disciples come to the empty tomb in John 20. And even though they don't understand everything, they believe. They simply believe. They open the empty hands of faith. So look at John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark... And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the team first also went in and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. So on that first Easter morning, Mary Magdalene sets her alarm clock for 5 a.m. And she goes to the tomb where they laid Jesus' very dead body. And she notices that the large stone had been rolled out of the way. It was in front of the grave. And now it's moved. And so she goes and she wakes up Peter and John at 5 in the morning. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And as they're wiping the sleep from their eyes, Mary tells them that somebody moved the body of Jesus. And so John and Peter get dressed real quick. They don't even brush their teeth. They run right past Starbucks, and they don't even go inside. They pass Starbucks and go straight to the tomb because there's no time for coffee. But John has been doing CrossFit Because he gets there before Peter does. John outruns Peter because Peter's not in shape. And so John gets there first and he peeks inside and he sees the burial cloths, but he doesn't see the body of Jesus. And then Peter finally gets there, winded of course, and trying to catch his breath. And Peter goes inside the empty tomb and they simply believe. They remember all that Jesus said about his his resurrection, how the Son of Man would be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead. So they believe. They come to the empty tomb and they simply reach out the empty hands of faith and they believe. But John, the one that Jesus loved, who's writing this gospel here, he goes out of his way to tell us in verse 7 this very important detail. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So the face cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head was folded. Hmm, that's interesting. What's the first thing that Jesus does post-resurrection? He folds the laundry. Think about that. I know there are people here who love folding laundry, like it's therapeutic for you, and you just love it. There there are probably people here today who get great pleasure and joy out of taking a load of laundry out of the dryer and dumping it all on your bed and turning that massive warm lump of clothes into a nice crisp stack of clothes. I know there are people here like that today because you are elbowing your spouse or your spouse is elbowing you. And for some of you who love to turn massive warm lumps of clothes into nice crisp stacks of clothes, you just found your life verse, John 20, verse 7. Some of you are absolutely thrilled that the very first thing Jesus did on Easter was fold some laundry. Well, whether you like folding clothes or you just live out of piles, John chapter 20, verse 7 might become your life verse because of what it means. The folded clothes tell us that there's a new order now. The new world order. The new creation. The folded clothes tell us that Jesus is reversing the curse of Adam. Jesus is reversing the curse that Adam brought on this world because of his sin. And where did Adam ruin this world? 
Where did that tragic event occur? In a garden. And where is Jesus resurrected? In a garden. The Bible expects you to make that connection. That's like a a slow pitch lobbed into the air. You're expected to, to make that connection that Adam sinned in the garden and Jesus was resurrected in a garden and you're expected to hit it out of the park. Adam messed things up in a garden. Jesus fixes everything in a garden. The folded clothes sitting in a nice crisp stack tell us that Jesus is overcoming the disorder of Adam. He is reversing the curse and bringing order to his broken creation. Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5. Jesus came to do what Adam undid when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live because we are sinners And Jesus came to die the death that we all deserve because we are sinners. And his resurrection restores and fixes what Adam broke. So the resurrection is the dawn of a new era, a new creation, bursting forth through death. Out of the grave, Jesus overturned what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And so the tomb became like a womb. The tomb became the womb of the new creation. The garden tomb became the womb of the new creation where Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, emerged in victory. And so Jesus comes back from the dead in the garden and the Bible expects us to make that connection. Jesus walked out of the garden in the cool of Easter morning. In the Garden of Eden, if you recall, when Adam sinned, when Adam ruined this world, God walked in the garden in the cool of the what? The evening. But on Easter, after Jesus was vindicated, he emerged from the tomb and he walked victoriously in the garden in the cool of the morning. Totally reversing what Adam did. Jesus walks in the garden now as the new Adam. And so there's darkness and then light. The darkness of the cross and then the light of Easter morning. After darkness, then light. Evening, then morning. That's the order. Does that sound familiar? Evening, then Morning, after darkness, then light, evening, then morning. It should. Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. That's the pattern. Darkness, and then light. Evening, and then morning. And so, if you notice when you read Genesis... On the seventh day, when the Lord rests, it never says there was evening and then there was morning the seventh day. Why? Because God had entered into this rest. And now, at the resurrection, Jesus is going back and he's filling in those verses in Genesis 1 and 2 and saying there is evening and now there is morning. And this is now the eighth day, if you will, the new creation from here on out, evening 
and then morning. That's the pattern. And that's what we see here in the garden. The darkness of his death and then the light of his resurrection. The darkness, the catastrophe, and then hope. It's good news for bad people like us. Did you know that J.R.R. Tolkien called the resurrection a catastrophe? In a letter written to his son Christopher, Tolkien called the resurrection a catastrophe. Well, what does that mean? Well, the prefix you, E-U, means good. And so we have words like eulogy from the, the word logos, word, and you stick you on that and it's a eulogy, it's a good word that is spoken at a funeral. We have words like the Eucharist, the, the Greek word charis means grace, you stick you on the front, you get Eucharist, which is a good grace, God's goodness comes to us in the form of his grace as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then you have words like euangelion, which is angelos, message, messenger, and you, good. It's the good news. That's the word gospel, euangelion. And so writing to his son Christopher, Tolkien said this, I coined the word you, catastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. It is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature changed in material cause and effect, the chain of death feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. The resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears. That's the response we should all have when we read about the empty tomb. Joy with Tears. That's what we experienced Friday night if you were here for a good Friday service. If you missed out, sorry, nanny, nanny, boo boo. We had a great time. It was glorious. And I've heard lots of people talking about it ever since then. We had an incredible time. It was a moment of, of joy, and yet there's tears. It was glorious. That's what Easter is. The resurrection, the empty tomb should produce joy with tears of gladness. And it should produce laughter too. I mean, this morning I just thought, my sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. I should just laugh. Like a good, you know, tears rolling down your eyes and cheeks laughing. Jean LaRue said this, We don't have to take ourselves seriously because we are not defined by faults, failures, or fears. The gospel allows people to truly laugh, not as an escape or avoidance of real problems, but because the real, real problem has already been dealt with. The real problem has already been dealt with. Our sins are forgiven and death has been defeated. And so Easter means, and the folded clothes by Jesus means, that we should have a good, gut-busting, tears rolling down your cheeks. Please stop, I can't breathe, kind of laughter. That should be our response to the empty tomb. We have tears of joy because the invitation is there to just come and believe. That's the invitation. Come and believe the euangelion. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. We come to the empty tomb like Peter, John, and Mary. And we just believe. 
We don't have to try harder to make God love us or to get his acceptance or to gain his approval. It's time to stop trying harder and doing more things to earn his love. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to try to be good enough. We don't have to try and keep the rules. We just open the empty hands of faith and receive the gift that God is giving us. Just okay, like a child. I just take it. Robert Capon said that we just need to shut up and accept what Jesus has done for us. I like that. He said this trust him, and when you have done that, you are living the life of grace. No matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how much heaviness and sadness your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right, and you just say thank you and shut up. I love that. You just give thanks and you shut up. That's Easter. You just say thank you and you shut up. You simply believe that somebody else, by his death and resurrection, has made it all right. You come to the empty tomb empty-handed. You bring nothing. Nothing. And you just hold out the empty hands of faith and you say, thank you, Jesus. And now, Lord, I'm just going to shut up and accept this gift. That's it. You just believe that his life, death, and resurrection is enough. Jesus folded the laundry, and now all we have to do is give thanks and just shut up. And so there's your to-do list for the week. Give thanks and shut up. And I went in and added this morning a number three for that list and laugh. This week, your homework, give thanks, shut up, and laugh. Like, you know, one of those gut-busting tears rolling down your cheeks where you're telling someone, stop, I can't breathe, stop. You know when you're laughing so hard and someone keeps going on, you're just like, stop, I can't breathe. That kind of laughter. And then while you're shutting up, think about the resurrection this week. I mean, resurrection. That takes faith to believe, doesn't it? Resurrection. Think about how crazy that idea is. I think in the church and as Christians, we're just too familiar with the idea of resurrection. And so the shock seems to have worn off in the church. It's odd, if we're honest. It's weird, if we're honest. Coming back from the dead. I'm afraid we Christians have just got so used to the idea that it doesn't startle us anymore. Think about it. We believe that Jesus came back from the dead. And we believe that we will come back from the dead one day. That's weird. And that's strange because I've never seen a resurrected person with my eyes. Ever. But I believe it. I absolutely believe it even if it sounds bizarre. Don't let the resurrection become old hat to you. 
marvel anew this Easter morning that one day you will be made new. Be astounded that you serve a God who raises dead people. The Bible's job description of God is that he brings people back from the dead. No other so-called God has that job description and can back it up. But this is what our God does. He loves bringing people back from the dead. Raising dead people is God's business and business is good. Don't ever let that truth bounce off of you. Be amazed by this good news and have a good laugh, Christian, because your sins are forgiven and death has been defeated. In fact, Paul says that this is the most important thing to believe. The gospel. The gospel is the center of everything for Paul. What does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4? through 4? He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of First importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says the gospel is what saves people. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for him, it was of first importance. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Don't leave that part out. That's crucial. He was buried three days. He didn't die, and 30 minutes later he came back from the dead. Burial is an important aspect of the gospel. He was buried, and then he was raised on the third day, Paul says, according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. But what scriptures? We know there are a lot of scriptures that tell us that Jesus died for our sins, verses that anticipate Jesus dying in our place, plenty of verses in Genesis, the book of Leviticus, obviously, Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But where does the Old Testament tell us that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures? Where does the Old Testament tell us That Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Where's that at? I've never read that in the Old Testament. So where in the Old Testament does it tell us that Jesus would be raised on the third day? Jesus even said it was written in the Old Testament that he would be resurrected on the third day. Luke 24 verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written... That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. But what scripture? Where does it say that in the Old Testament? Perhaps it's Jonah in the belly of the well for three days, maybe. Or Hosea 6-2, perhaps. But I think Paul has in mind here the third day. The Third day, as in Genesis chapter 1, day 3 of creation business, the third day, I think that's what Paul has in mind. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, which describe what happened on the third day. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, 
plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This is what Paul and this is what Jesus mean when they say that it is written that Jesus would rise on the third day according to the scriptures. Like the third day of creation. That's the pattern. According to the third day of creation. We know on the third day of creation all of these plants and trees reproduce according to their own kind, don't they? Apple trees make apple trees, and orange trees make what? Oranges. Good. You guys are awake. And you're very smart. Apple trees make apple trees, and orange trees make oranges. You get the idea. They, they have their seed inside. The next generation of that tree or that fruit is, is inside that fruit, isn't it? So what happens to the fruit then happens to the seed. That's how fruit works, and that's how it is with Adam And that's how it is with Jesus. One is a fruit of death and one is a fruit of life. Adam's sin has affected all of us. So Adam produces death. Adam produces Adam's. And Jesus' perfect life produces life. Here's how Paul says it a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 15. And we know he's, he's making that connection here with the third day, with what he says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, there's your link back to Genesis chapter 1, third day of creation. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who trust in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What it's saying is that Jesus comes, he's resurrected, and then at his coming, all those who are now in him, the fruit, the seed that is inside him, when he comes again, we will be resurrected. He's the first fruit, and we follow after him. Continuing, Paul says, Christ, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Here's what Paul's saying. If you're in Christ, because he was resurrected, you will be too. He's the first fruits, and if you're in him, an apple tree makes apple trees, oranges make oranges, Jesus makes Christians, Jesus' resurrected body produces resurrected bodies. If you're in Christ, because he was resurrected, then you will be too. That's how it was on the third day of creation, and that's how it will be on the final day. What happens to the fruit happens also to the seed that is inside that fruit. What happens to Jesus will happen to you, Christian. Third day of creation business is what we're talking about here. Resurrection is third day of creation, Genesis chapter 1 business. That's what Paul's getting at here. And if you are in Christ and he has been raised from the dead, then you will too. 
Jesus will come back, Paul says here, and then, he says, we'll be resurrected, and then the end of this world as we know it will be over. The new order, the new creation, the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in, and then we'll party, and then we'll laugh with gut-busting tears rolling down our, our cheeks and saying, stop, stop, I can't breathe, I've got to catch my breath, kind of laughter. Jesus could come back at any moment. Maybe today. How cool would that be? Experiencing resurrection on Easter? Experiencing our bodies being transformed in an instant, getting glorified bodies on Easter? Sign me up. Sign me up, Lord. I'll take it today. And if Jesus came back today, Paul says, then all believers would experience resurrection, glorified bodies, and then he would usher in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and it would be the end of Adam's world as we know it. And so what happened to Jesus on that first Easter morning will happen to us because we are in him, like fruit trees on the third day of creation. So understand this. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. I mean, you're in this sanctuary, you're in this church today, but every single person here is either in Christ, like a seed in the fruit of Christ, or you are in Adam, like a seed inside the fruit of Adam. We are all seed, if you will, in one of those two fruits, Jesus or Adam. That's it. It's just those two. Those are the only two options. You're either in Jesus, in Christ, or you're in Adam. And so really, there are only two men in history, Adam and Jesus. Sorry, you're not that important to be included in this list. And neither am I. And Paul doesn't include himself in this list. It's just Adam and Jesus. And like seed in a fruit, we are all located in one of them. That's how Paul thinks of humanity. Paul thinks of humanity in very broad terms. You're in Christ or you're in Adam. Nobody else. Two heads, Adam and Jesus, and everybody is a seed in one of those fruits. In fact, the reality is that we're all born in Adam. We're all a seed in the fruit of Adam. We are all born in Adam. Some people stay that way forever because they never repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And some people repent of their sins, they trust in Jesus, and then they belong to him forever. Because we're in Adam when we're born, when he sinned, we sinned. When he died spiritually, we died spiritually. Now, I know that rubs some people the wrong way, especially in our world today. So i got to get a drink for this part. Because what I'm about to say rubs people wrong. We are not guilty by our choice. We are not condemned by our choice. Because none of us would wake up one day and just declare, I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I am guilty of breaking God's commands. No one is guilty by choice. No one is guilty by their choice anyway. Now we prove it through our life, the way we live, that we're guilty. But as sinners, we are first guilty because of Adam's choice. We are guilty as sinners because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's choice, because Adam, the very first human being that was made by God, he chose to disobey and eat the fruit in the Garden of Eden. And that rubs us the wrong way as Americans, doesn't it? It rubs us the wrong way as Americans to be told that we are guilty and that we are condemned because of another person's choice. 
We don't like that, do we? Why? Because the following statement is in our DNA. It's in our blood as Americans. What statement is that? It's this statement, which I'm sure you learned in grade school. No taxation without representation. Didn't you learn that at an early age? It's in our DNA. It's in our blood as Americans. And because someone made it rhyme, it's very memorable. And we also remember it, don't we? And so we cry, no taxation without representation, England. Take that. We're dumping all your tea into the sea. I'm sure they had those accents back then. Eventually, we became a little more redneck. And because that idea is in our blood as Americans, because it's in our DNA, we transfer that mentality to original sin, and we say, no condemnation without representation. And so we think, I wasn't in the garden with Adam. I didn't eat that fruit. I don't even like fruit. I like potato chips. Why am I guilty? Why am I condemned because of something he did? But the Bible tells us that we were with Adam. We were in Adam back then. We were a seed back in Adam. But the good news of the gospel is that just as Adam was our representative, so too is Jesus. Just as you weren't in the garden, you weren't on the cross either. Let me say that again. Just as you weren't in the garden, you weren't on the cross either, Christian. You were guilty in Adam, in the garden, and you are righteous in Christ, in the gospel, even though you weren't in the garden with Adam or you weren't on the cross with Jesus. You're guilty in the garden, and you're now guiltless in the gospel. And so this is more accurate. Condemnation with representation. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's the Garden of Eden. You were condemned by Adam even though you weren't there. You were condemned by Adam as soon as the juice from that fruit ran off his lips and down his chin. And so with Adam in the garden, it's condemnation with representation. You are a sinner because of what he did. But with Jesus in the garden on Easter morning, it's justification with representation. That's the gospel that you were justified by Jesus. You were declared righteous. Your sins are forgiven even though you weren't there. There is no justification. There's no forgiveness of sins without representation. And Christian Jesus is your representative. You didn't ask Adam to represent you, but he did. And you didn't ask Jesus to represent you, but he did. And so things have been done to you on your behalf, both in Adam and in Christ. Adam messed you up and Jesus fixes you if you repent and own up and fess up to your sin and rebellion and you trust in him and in him alone. You were condemned in Adam and you were justified and declared righteous in Jesus. And that's the bad news and that's the good news. Condemned in Adam, justified in Jesus. Guilty in the Garden of Eden, guiltless in the Garden of on Easter morning. And it's all something that is done 
to you and for you on your behalf even though you weren't there. Adam condemns you as a sinner, as a rebel, as guilty, without you being present when he ate from the tree when the juice ran down his chin. And Jesus justifies you and declares you as righteous and forgives you of your sins without you being present when he died on the tree as the sour wine ran down his chin. And so one man in one tree condemns, that's the Garden of Eden, and one man in one tree justifies, that's Jesus. And so everything changed with creation that day in the Garden of Eden when that talking snake showed up and started asking questions. Oh, how I wish Adam would have just hit him upside the head. But the talking snake showed up and started asking questions and it went downhill since then. But everything changed again that day in the garden when Jesus showed up and folded laundry on Easter morning. And he crushed the head of that snake through his life, death, and resurrection. A new order has come. Jesus folded the laundry and that changed everything. And because he did, all creation, all creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. The gospel is not just about us being forgiven of our sins, as wonderful as that is. It's for all of creation. This has cosmic implications. Jesus folding the laundry on Easter morning has cosmic implications. Heaven will be glorious. All creation will be made new. And that means, you might want to buckle up for this part, that means that there will be dinosaurs on the new earth. Dinosaurs. Wait until you see a glorified T-Rex. When Jesus folded his laundry in that tomb, it meant that he's bringing dinosaurs back. He's redeeming all of his creation. And he's making all things new. You think Saturn is a cool planet now? Wait until you see Saturn's rings in the new heavens and the new earth. And wait until you see me. Because Jesus folded his laundry on Easter morning, everything sad will come untrue. That's what that means. It's new. It's better. Jesus is making all things new. Mind-blowing, glorious new. Heaven is going to be so glorious that when we get there, I think we'll all just say, thank you, Jesus, and we'll just shut up and soak it in for a while. Rod Rosenblatt said, when the major stress in pulpit and curriculum shifts from Christ outside of me dying for me, and it shifts to Christ inside of me improving me, the upshot is always the same. Many broken, sad ex-Christians who despair of being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. What he's saying is that when we shift the preaching and the curriculum from Christ outside of me, dying for me in my place, to Christ now inside of me, improving me, making me better, he says the upshot is always the same. We despair because we just can't get our act together, right? And so he says what the sad alumni, those who have been burned by this message and just can't be good enough no matter how hard they try, he says what they need to hear, perhaps for the first time, 
is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will get in like that. You mean it was just Jesus' death for me? That's why I'm here? But of course, that's the point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, you won't be condemned. No believer in Jesus will be, not a single one. Every human being will be resurrected one day. Resurrection isn't just for Christians. All people will be resurrected. Some to eternal life and some resurrected to eternal death. Those who trust in Jesus and repent of their sins and come with the empty hands of faith will experience the resurrection that Jesus' empty tomb provides. So you bring the empty hands of faith and Jesus brings the empty tomb. Does it sound like a good deal? But if you don't trust in Jesus, you don't repent of your sins, you will be resurrected one day, not to live forever with God on the new earth, but to experience eternity in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't want that for any of you. I don't want that for any of you. Turn from your sin. Just, just admit, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against the holy God, and yet he'll love me and forgive me. I trust in that. I believe. Hell is death forever and ever and ever and ever. Let Jesus change all of that for you today. Come to the empty tomb today and with the empty hands of faith, believe. Come to the empty tomb empty-handed. That's how you honor God. That's how you glorify Jesus. You come empty-handed. You come and you admit that you need him. You desperately need him. That you need his life, death, and resurrection. That you need his righteousness. That you need his gospel. And you come weary from trying to be good enough. Exhausted from trying to be good enough trying to measure up, exhausted and weary from trying so hard to obey, and you just collapse on him and collapse into his arms and let him carry you home. You admit that you're weak and you're helpless and you're unable to meet the demands of God's holy law. And you come heavy laden and you come with all your burdens and all your cares and you just drop them at Jesus' feet and you tell him that you can't go on anymore and you can't do it yourself anymore. That's faith. That's how you glorify Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, let me tell you as the pastor of this church that I really mess up sometimes. All times. But let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. I don't get it, but he is. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? You can belong to him if you're willing to deal with your pride, if you're willing to bow the knee, if you're willing to get real with the real Jesus and fess up to your sin and open the empty hands of faith. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? I think so. Here's the good news, y'all. One day, maybe it's today, one day Christian failures are going to walk into heaven will be welcomed into heaven by Jesus with open arms. 
One day we're going to leap into heaven like calf leaping out of its stall. And we'll be laughing and laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. And then we'll look at one another and say, you mean it was just Jesus' death for me? That's why I'm here? But of course, that's the point, isn't it? Jesus paid it all. Just receive. It's a gift. Just receive. I want to close with question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, how are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Will you accept this gift today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your kindness to sinners like us who keep going back to so many things to find joy and satisfaction. People who have offended you and your holy character and your holy law through everything we think, say, and do and the motives that drive them. And yet, God, we thank you. You're merciful to us in sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that he loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. And thank you that he folded the laundry that day because the new creation, day eight, has come, Father, and it's just begun. May we rest in this truth today in Jesus' name. Amen.